morning. I'll be reading Genesis, the first creation story. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. The second creation story. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water to whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put on man whom he formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. I picked these two passages this morning, the, these two sort of parallel creation stories that we find in Genesis. It's really interesting, isn't it, to hear them read alongside each other because you suddenly realise that uh, th th these are two really competing creation stories that, that have just come reflected through in, in the religious tradition. Um, and this speaks of the process by which um, Genesis, particularly some of these Old Testament books, came into being. And uh, biblical scholars uh, such as Walter Brueggemann, who I'm leaning on for this morning's sermon, uh, will tell us that these first few chapters of the book of Genesis took their current shape really quite late in the, uh, in, in the religious tradition. So they take their current shape about 600 years before the time of Jesus. And they're written down by the Jews uh, who are in exile in Babylon. So if you know your, your kind of Jewish mythology or Jewish history, you've got you know, the King David's a thousand years BC, 
And then you've got uh, the division of the kingdoms into the north and the south, and then the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians come in in the sixth century and destroy the southern kingdom and take, take people off into exile in Babylon. And it's those exiles who have their, their religious oral traditions who start writing things down in exile. So I'm not wanting to suggest there are not older stories in what we read this morning, stories passed down through the oral tradition, you know, told from parents, child around the campfire in the evening or whatever. But Genesis as we know it is a, is a book that takes its shape in exile, in a time of disaster. And what we find there is a reshaping of uh, older stories uh, to serve a quite new purpose. And of course, the purpose was not to write a scientific textbook about the origins of the earth. Rather, it was to tell these stories theologically about where humans sit before God in their relationship to the planet that they live on. And this was done uh, in, in a specific way to argue against the theological claims of the Babylonians. So uh, the Babylonians claimed that uh, their gods were the gods that would control the future, that their gods had defeated the God of Israel, and that this is why uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed and Israelites had been carried off into exile. And the Babylonian creation, creation mythology is horrifically violent. Um, one god takes his consort and cuts her body in half and spreads it out and that's what forms the heavens and basically the Babylonian creation mythology says the world was created in horrific violence and it faces an inevitably violent future and that therefore the response of humans is that they can appropriately be violent along the way. So it's a, it's a religious tradition that, that lends support to the Babylonian uh, ethos of violent conquest. And it's against these claims of violent creation and violent future and violent present that the Jews gave shape to their creation stories. And where they differ is the Jewish stories talk of creation as good and of God's intent in creation being one of peace and of harmony and of humans living well with nature rather than against it. Of course, from the point of view of the Jews at this point in exile in Babylon, their situation was, was awful. It really looked like their idea that creation might be good was losing to a dominant narrative that creation is going to descend into violence and we might as well do that as well along the way. So these Jewish creation stories at the time they were first written down were addressing a real historical problem which was that the Jewish view of God was under threat. The Jewish view of good God, good creation, good humans living well with God and creation, all of that was under threat because it looked like the Babylonian narrative of violence was going to write the future. These stories certainly weren't written to provide 21st century readers with a scientific understanding of the origin of the universe or to explain the emergence of humanity on the earth, but they were written to inspire faith in God, even when all the evidence of experience seems to be arguing for something different. 
These stories tell of God as a faithful and loving God, even when all is not well with the world. And so when we look around us at the world that we live in, and we see escalating violence in the climate crisis, with its disproportionate impacts on the poorest people of the world, and the, the threat of a, of a violent and descending future, we are in many ways seeing the world much as the ancient Israelites experienced Babylon. And so our hope can be sapped that we can make a difference, that there can be a good and hopeful future. And I think these ancient stories from the Jewish tradition, from the Hebrew Bible, of the goodness of creation can still speak hopeful words of a God who is very much still at work in the world, drawing goodness and faithfulness from situations of hopelessness and despair. This is one of the reasons I wanted to have Annie along this morning to talk about the commitment, because there is just one of the many threads of hope that we're not necessarily done, that the future is not necessarily yet written in descent into violence. For those whose lives were in tatters, whose hopes had been exiled, these ancient creation stories offer a description of God at work, bringing new life from the dust of the ground, creating new hope, offering possibly a new dawn for humanity. And these stories offer to us a claim that a word has been spoken which has the capacity to transform reality. The idea that God speaks creation into being, that the word of God in some way shapes creation, that the word of God is an action that alters reality. And this isn't a historical claim, it's a theological one. This is a story that conveys something of the character of the God that we believe in, a God who is bound to the world. And it speaks something of the character of the world that is bound to God. The word of God, spoken first in creation, is heard again within the Christian tradition in Christ, who is described as the divine word and is still spoken continually in our world through the spirit of Christ at work in the world. There is a creative word of good news that has not yet died, and it is the echo and action of the word of God, offering words of hope, words of life-giving and life-creating power, bringing and shaping hope from the dry dust of the ground. So these stories of creation from two and a half thousand years ago, are words of proclamation. They're not stories to tell us how it happened. To make them such is like reducing the wonder of encountering a work of art to a discussion about the technique of the artist. Rather, the concern of the Israelites in exile who shaped these stories was with God's intent in creation, not his technique. And they give voice to good news that life in God's world can and should be a joyous and grateful response to the gift that God has given us. This is the purpose of these stories. We need to reject the seductions of literalism and rationalism and discover once again the good news announced to the despairing exiles in Babylon. And I think if we hear the text in this way, we can leave aside questions of how the world came into being to those scientists gifted by God with the ability to explore such issues. 
Some of you are in the congregation today and I rejoice that you can do that. And I think all of us here can then turn our attention to the question of this good news that these stories offer. And the good news, I think, is this, that both God and God's creation were and are and will be bound together in a relationship that is both divinely assured but also delicate and precarious. There is no get out of jail free card here, I'm afraid, on issues like climate change. But we can be assured that God is daily attentive to creation. We can see the fruitfulness of creation as a natural response to God's divine love and care. And the beauty of creation speaks to us of the wonder of God. And the gift of new life is evidence of God's ongoing commitment to the world. God is not yet finished with this planet. So whether it's the newly hatched birds in the nest in the garden or the wonder of the birth of a human baby, the gift of new life continues to echo wonderfully the creative and life-giving intent of the God of creation. But I think we also have to recognise that there is a distance between God and creation, which allows that creation, which includes us, its own freedom of action. The world is not overpowered by its creator. We are not puppets dancing on the ends of strings controlled from on high. And so those of us who inhabit the created world need to be very aware of the fragility of the goodness of creation. Babylon can arise and threaten to write new scripts of violence in any age. We know how easily land can be overfarmed, how easily the natural resources of the planet can be plundered, how easily the perfect balance of ecosystems can be distorted, how easily one human being can turn against another in hatred and violence. We know, in other words, how easily God's good creation can be spoiled and distorted and destroyed. And this, of course, is where we come into the story. This is where the human race is situated in the Jewish creation stories. We have our parts to play in God's intent for creation. This is what we see in our passage from Genesis. Just as creation is both close and distant, so also is the relationship between humankind and God. Humans are honoured, respected and enjoyed by the one who calls them into being. And it is this standing before God which gives each human person our inalienable identity. Of all the creatures that God creates, it is only humans that are spoken to directly by God. It is only humans that have the freedom to respond in speech to God. It is only humans who are said to exist in the image of God. We are, each of us, this text tells us, created in the image of God, not physically, but in terms of our sharing with God's creative power, in sharing with God in the responsibility of caring for creation and for one another. And so we end up with the command that humans have dominion over the earth. Some have taken this very negatively, seeing it in terms of subjugation, blaming this understanding for legitimizing the abuse of nature by way of human technology. But in its original meaning, it's much more likely that the exercising of dominion should be seen as being the role of a shepherd who cares, tends and feeds the animals. 
humans having dominion over the planet doesn't automatically have to employ imply exploitation and abuse rather it tells us that our role on the earth is intended to be that of securing the well-being of every other creature and of bringing the promise of each creature to full fruition as those who have dominion over the planet before god we are those with choices to make and so when we come to an understanding of what it means to be human based on the creation stories of genesis and the revelation of god in jesus we need to learn to see ourselves as those created by god sharing with god in the care for and dominion over the earth not as its masters but as its shepherds we need to learn to see ourselves as those created by god to exist in relationship with god and with creation as a whole and to see ourselves as those created by god to be the bearers of words of good news to all people and to all of creation and this directly takes us i am convinced into words of works of political action to care for the planet it takes us into signing up for the commitment it takes us into praying for the planet it takes us into voting well it takes us into some of the stuff we're going to be hearing about from susan a little later in the service because this understanding of what it is to be human before god on this planet is and should be a radical world transforming vision which challenges our preconceptions and idolatries it challenges those who see the world very differently it challenges those who have sold their souls to babylon and are simply seeking profit off the back of violence we are the exiles who have the word of good news to proclaim and that word is a vision of the kingdom of god on earth and it is what we pray for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and it is what jesus promises that the kingdom of god is amongst us so is all lost? Not necessarily. Before God, I pray that there is a hopeful and good future from this day going forwards, and we have a part to play in that. And now, before we have our discussion, I'm going to ask Amy to read us her poem today. Thanks, Keith. Um, just a bit of context. Uh, to this poem um so i wrote this poem this poem is based on a conversation i had um with my boyfriend a little while ago and um we were talking quite a jokey way about you know what would happen when we got older and we'd be in the care home together and just it was just a kind of fun jokey conversation but it made me start thinking about the long-term bigger picture um in terms of the way that our world is heading and the potential of where that could go and so i started writing this poem and it's called when we get old we are planning what we are going to do when we get old only we won't seeing other people's babies makes me anxious i flip the dial between despair and denial like a man who can't decide where to sit on the bus we are all going to die, says the woman in BBC Estuary English. It all sounds far too melodramatic, but I can hear extinction humming in the fridge and the radiator as another tonne of ice slips into the Arctic Sea. Take each day at a time, 
they say. Live in the moment as if that will help us survive. As if all the saved moments make each day appear, money back guaranteed. People take it, say I take it all too seriously, that I should lighten up as we shuffle head down towards ecocide. I know that I am part of the problem. Cling on to tiny actions like lifeboats while others fight with bloody hands for our world. But I want to do something, more as selfishness and everything, because I love this life and I love this world and the people in it. But sometimes the something gets so big, I struggle to see what it is. Still, I send birthday cards and joke about our care home. As if it's all going to carry on. As if life is an all-you-can-eat option and we have already paid. Thank you, Amy. Now is a chance for the panellists to unmute their microphones and provide us some comment. We did have a comment from Jeff, uh, who said that the Israelites had the advantage that when they got freedom, they returned from Babylon to their Israel. Um, whereas in our situation, uh, if we're going to change the earth, it has to be the earth that we're sitting in. Uh, we, we can't go to some nice uh, new, new land of running with honey and, uh, and with running with milk and honey, like Canaan. So how do we change this earth is the question for us. Everyone's being a bit shy this morning. Another brutal comment from Jeff was that um, the environment is very much dependent on physics and God made the physics that we have. Um, but it's also dependent on economics and economics is very much man-made. So that gives us some sort of challenges as, as to the sort of things that we can change. I suppose I might add to that just from my perspective as far as the way that we can make change happen. I know that we're going to hear from Citizens UK about, which is an organisation very much about institutions and individuals. Um, I think we know that citizens can act, but also we need to act collectively. Um, and I suppose, I think I feel that we need we need on every single level of society for there to be change in order to see the incredible scale of, of, um, of, of change to occur. Um, and those questions about economics are huge, whether we can face the kinds of reduction in growth that might be necessary are huge questions for us all. Um, but I certainly think that, that the hope that comes with um, a huge range of different activities can be really important to feel that you have a role both as an individual and within your communities. I always find it difficult to know um, where to start because there's just so much that needs to change. Um, so um, I don't know if I should start by becoming a vegan or um, I don't know, I just find it really difficult when it comes to to climate change because there's so many factors to it. And I think it's important for me to 
um, find a company or an organization that can guide me along the way because then I can really commit. Yeah, I would just agree. I think it is overwhelming. And I think that that is a feeling that it's okay to acknowledge. I think we are all overwhelmed by this. Um, but I suppose, as you say, it's really useful coming together with organisations or individuals and equally that I suppose there needs to be some leadership as well. I think we can all do a lot as ourselves as individuals, but in order for there to be what I would argue would be a, a more systematic and sustained and fair approach to this where we don't see the people with the least suffering the most we I would argue do need both individual and institutional change and also political action um, and I, I would I would really hope that people don't feel individually guilty but that we also um, focus our attentions on people who have huge amounts of power and in by doing the individual, it shouldn't necessarily be this way, but you sort of, people view you with more legitimacy when you try to ask for structural change and campaign for structural change. And though it shouldn't be that way, like if you say, well, you know, I've been vegan for X amount of time, I do this and that, they are more likely to listen to you. Um, and even though it shouldn't be that way, it's still like, okay, well, this does help. And so I'm going to do it. But you still feel like, well, just the effect of me going vegan isn't actually that much. But yeah, it's hot. Jess made a comment on the chat saying <clears throat> that uh, she too felt overwhelmed. But we have to um, do things we can do individually, uh, like recycling, like saving water. And I would add to that, one of the things that we can notice in all the burden of the pandemic, one of the good things that happened was the amount of air pollution that went down. So because we had to stop doing lots of things that we normally do, we've actually reduced pollution. And therefore, as we, as we restart those things, perhaps we're being challenged to start them carefully, to, do, to travel when we need to travel, rather than just because we can't be bothered to walk somewhere. Uh, so that there are lots of things we can do just as a slight change to our life, which will make a big, big change. But then um, Frank has commented that really um, to deal with climate change, there are lots of big technological changes that need to happen. So there are policy things that have to be done. And that's the that, that's one of the big challenges. But I think we're, um, a lot of us are saying you've got to start with the small things as well simultaneously. I think from my I think from my perspective I'm always slightly worried when the religious language gets mixed up with the political language on this climate change issue um, that happens less here than it does in the United States I, I noticed this this week when Donald Trump was reacting against the criticism of Joe Biden he said that Joe Biden was against God and damaging the Bible <laughs> and I was thinking about that when uh, Simon was explaining the origins of some of these uh, Bible stories. But there is a danger, I think, if religious people take a moral high ground and say, we're all doomed unless you all try to uh, be, be more obscenious like we are and follow a special diet and uh, um, 
avoid travel and so on, it, 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 it leads us wide open to, to claims of hypocrisy. Because, I mean, even if we're even if we take the, the, the choice to be vegan or uh, to, to take the bicycle rather than drive a car, you know, every time we watch a, a film on Netflix or, um, you know, log on to Google, we're, we're still part of a system which is using up an enormous amount of carbon emissions. I think also politically I'm encouraged, uh, leaving aside the religious discussion, the Prime Minister made a very clear commitment in his speech uh, in June that he wanted Britain to uh, be the leading the way in terms of producing carbon-free, emission-free passenger aircraft. And so the government is investing a lot of money. This government, with an 80-seat Conservative majority, is investing a lot of money in, in green technology. How that's going to be disrupted by the um, economic uh, recession caused by COVID-19, I think remains to be seen. But there obviously is a political will across the spectrum uh, to address these issues, although it's going to need a massive amount of international cooperation, um, with the United States being reluctant to, to engage multilaterally on, on, on this issue internationally. Um, you know, we have a major obstacle in the way. Amy, if you're talking, really, we can't hear you. Oh. Now I can. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I was just saying I think historically climate change has had an image problem in terms of it's been seen as a white middle class issue, whereas, as Annie said, that's actually not the case. People from all different backgrounds and parts of society are interested. So I think we just have to be careful in the way that we talk about it. Are we talking about it as a kind of left-wing issue? I mean, it is a justice issue, but can we speak into what people value so if they value community if they value kind of their family what what they care about even if they value their money and their savings in terms of the long term actually speaking to that and saying it long term economically it's beneficial for you um so it's guess it's meeting people where they are and um not just talking about it in the way that ma that it matters to us and we want to talk about it um that, that's kind of, I, I think, I can't remember which organisation it was, but I did some training with them and they were talking about that. So even people on the more evangelical side of the spectrum, if you talk to them about creation care and stewardship and things like that, that will speak to them more than if you talk to, if you talk to a Bloomsbury congregation where you talk more about um, justice. Um, whereas both of those kind of same thing, they kind of cross over, but it's speaking to people in a language that they understand and that it resonates with them to get them on board. Um, I don't know if you've seen Jeff's comment, but in terms of like the economic aspect, I have seen like, I guess sort of calls for changing the economics perspective, um, something called degrowth, that in general our economic aims, like the official economic aim of the government is a 2% growth in GDP each year. Now, that's similar worldwide, um, obviously varies country by country, but in general, everyone wants growth because that means, you know, more the economy is doing better. But in fact, this attitude is part of this, you know, consumer driven outlook that leads to resource depletion. And so, if we manage to reframe our entire economic debate in terms of, you know, that growth is not the aim, just say, for instance, um, 
well, like climate justice is the aim and, you know, the measures of what we're doing well would then change. Um, and just reframing the narrative in that way. But I mean, it's not as simple as that. But I, I think that's a good point. I think the difficulty, again, with the question of hypocrisy is that, you know, if the message is coming, oh, let's not worry about economic growth, is that's coming from people in public sector jobs, in universities, in the church, in NGOs. <laughs> you know, if they're, they're all enjoying the, the benefits of a, a strong economy, which is being created by, you know, people who are generating wealth in other fields, um, it's all very well them saying, well, let's not worry about economic growth. So what if we don't grow by 2% and we have another recession? Because their jobs and their, their wealth is basically protected by the, you know, the, the government borrowing. But, I, you know, this is where we, we stray away from religion into the, into the, into the hard-nosed discussions about economics. And I think it's actually, you know, one of the things that both the sort of climate change ideologists and, the, and religious people have in common is that they tend to be, get a bit detached from, from the real world, including the science. I mean, I noticed Simon said, let's not get distracted by um, rationalism here as we were looking at the uh, creation stories. But there is an element at which we need to be quite rationalistic about what the implications economically are of dealing with climate change. Yeah, and also just to add to that, that those questions have very different implications for different countries in the world. And it can be naive to suggest that this is an option for many countries who are only um, managing to increase their GDP as it is. So I suppose that... For, from our angle would be why there needs to be incredible global governance of which we've <laughs> like we've, we've not seen for many years. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that any reframing of the narrative is in a way that achieves the same goals for those in poorer areas or poorer countries that currently rely on high GDP growth. You know, okay, yes, like, you would have a different primary aim, but it would still be to involve the needs of those who currently rely on that. I've got half an eye on the clock, or we've got a couple of things still to go on in the service. Keith, I wonder if you could um, move us on. Thanks for that discussion. It was useful that we branched off in two directions. One, looking at uh, human individual commitment and, and how, what we can do, but other excessive, being confident of or being acknowledging the, the, the big economic challenges of, of climate change, the big changes that have to happen either in, in economics or technology. So there's lots to talk about. And we could talk for hours. Let's spend some time in prayer. And as we consider our environment, let's celebrate the glory of creation. Even in London, in lockdown, um, new life surprises us and delights us. Flowers are still in bloom. The sun's been shining this week. The rain's been falling. New babies have been born in the hospitals. Uh, Dawn's twins, Amber and Ember, are growing. Um, it all insp inspires us to praise our creator God, Mother Nature, Heavenly Father. But in so many situations, the challenges to our environment in, uh, are really alarming to us. We think of Japan and Tokyo in particular, where a heat wave in the past few weeks has contributed to the death of more than 40 people. More people died in that heat wave than from the effects of coronavirus. 
and we also look with considerable concern on the situation in California where wildfires are destroying millions of acres of forestry. We pray for all the people who are affected and we pray for the people who are responding to the emergencies. And we also offer our prayers for those who face the incredibly complex tasks of coordinating an international response for people analyzing data, convening meetings, suggesting new approaches, working to create a consensus and then maintaining momentum. We ask forgiveness for ourselves when we can't be bothered to participate in the solutions or we grow so frustrated or jaded that we don't see that there's any potential for lifestyle changes. We also ask for forgiveness when we become resentful or angry about what we see as other people's environmental sins, especially when we fail to acknowledge our own shortcomings. We ask for God's blessings on our church community, our city, our country and our world. And as we consider our plans for the week ahead, we ask that we'll stay attuned to God's spirit and appreciate the gifts of creation. In Jesus' name. Amen.